So the tenth commandment is, you shall not covet. The other week I was sat in a restaurant with my family. We'd ordered the desserts and we were waiting for them to arrive. And as we were waiting, the table next to us was served. And my eyes opened wide at what I saw. Instantly, I began to reject my choice. There was something on the menu so much better that I could have ordered. And consequently, every mouthful for the rest of my meal was laced with that slight taste of regret. Welcome to the world of coveting. Coveting may not be a word that we use a lot today, but the concept of wanting what is not ours is well known. Be it desserts or clothes, houses or cars, salaries or talents or lifestyles, we so often want what other people have. Coveting is an issue utterly bound up with desire. As human beings, we all have unique desires. We all like different things. We have different tastes, different priorities. The world would be very boring if we didn't. But we do all have something in common. We all want what we haven't got. Now, of course, not all desire is bad. Some of our deepest desires are for good things. We desire pleasure and joy, belonging and security, comfort, safety, significance, love. All of these things are important. We need them in our lives. And indeed, without having any desires at all, we would all be like walking vegetables. But what we are often not aware of is how from the moment we are born, our desires are being molded and shaped by the world around us. In no time at all, we fall into thinking that the fulfillment of these good desires is to be found in obtaining material things. We want to be content, but we think that the only way of achieving that is acquiring the things that we don't already have. And encouraging covetousness in this way is a major national industry. We call it advertising. Did you know more money is spent on advertising than education in the West? Adverts on billboards and in magazines, on TV and online, all work to manipulate our desires and create new ones. A house or a car, a gadget or some furniture that we've been content with for years under the onslaught of advertising can suddenly seem old and shabby, and in need of replacement. We have all been worked on in this way. Everyone has. Now you may be sat there thinking, well this is hardly a crime, is it? It's not against the law to want things, no one's going to prison for this. But we would be naive not to realise the consequences of the coveting that is everywhere. People all around us are racking up huge debts on their credit cards. Unchecked desires lead to action. We all know of cases of adultery and theft. On a larger scale, whole nations go to war to get hold of the land and the resources and the wealth that belong to others. 
and the global environmental crisis that we are only just waking up to has been caused because human beings never have enough. We always want more and we have pillaged the earth to get it. So whether you want to call it longing or wishing, craving or yearning or desiring what we cannot have, this is what coveting is. And this is the damage that it is causing today. Let's begin to explore the issue a little more by asking ourselves the important question, why? Why do we covet? As said a moment ago, all human beings have desires that are good. The desires to be loved, to feel worthwhile, to belong, to feel secure. And as Christians, we believe that these desires are good because they were given to us by God. However, instead of trying to find the fulfilment of these desires in God, the one who made us to be the way that we are, we so often look elsewhere. How about this for an example? Most of us would agree that the desire to feel significant in life is a good one. God given. And the Bible says that the real fulfillment of that desire comes in knowing that we are the loved children of our Heavenly Father. But sadly, many people today try to fulfill this desire by wearing the right clothes, with the right labels attached to them. According to the advertising industry, significance comes with designer goods. Wearing them will make us popular and important. The right label will give our self-esteem a real boost. But you know, the truth is, it never really works. We're never fully satisfied. And instead, we're left looking at our Nike trainers or our Prada high heels, feeling rather confused and let down. And why do we behave like this? Well, the answer lies in the condition of the human heart. 500 years ago, the great church leader Martin Luther said that the basic human problem is that our hearts are curved in on themselves. And what he meant by that is that the person that we're most concerned about in the whole world is ourself. We are self-obsessed, selfish, the root cause of covetousness. And the same truth is demonstrated in the opening chapters of the Bible, the creation story in Genesis 1 to 3. In Genesis 1, God made the world and it was good, very good. In Genesis 2, God made men and women to enjoy the world, to look after it, to live contentedly together under his rule. The design, again, was very good. But unfortunately, in Genesis 3, trouble comes. God gave Adam and Eve one restriction. They were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But of course, Adam and Eve were tempted to break that one restriction. The serpent slithered up to them and suggested that if they ate the forbidden fruit, then they'd become like God. And in that moment, the desire to covet was sown. It was seemingly an attractive offer. 
Becoming like God, having all that power, making all the decisions in your life, never having to follow anyone else's instructions ever again. It was seemingly the offer of total freedom, but it was false. And sadly, Adam and Eve took that offer up, failing to realize that true freedom is only found in relationship with the loving God. And through their misplaced desire, Adam and Eve threw God off the throne and they put themselves there instead. And all of humanity have followed suit. Our hearts were made to love God and to love others as we love ourselves, but we choose only to love ourselves. And the result is that everyone else now has to fall in behind us. God, our neighbours, the whole of the environment in which we live. And this total distortion of our relationships has had massive consequences. Jesus' brother James wrote this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You cover, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. 1,500 years ago, there was a man called Augustine. He grew up in a Christian home, and like so many of us who did, he went through that age of rebellion, where he went out and did his own wild living. And after the consequences of that period played out, the dispirited Augustine turned back to God. And he famously said these words, You made our hearts, Lord, and they are restless until they find their rest in you. The truth is we all have restless hearts. And this, this form of heart disease is universal. It, it's the root cause of all human sin. All the problems that we see in our world today. Our covetous hearts will only be saved by turning back to the Lord. So how do we respond to this news? How do we defend ourselves against coveting? Well, how about these three recommendations? First of all, we've got to be aware and be realistic. Covetousness is more powerful and more dangerous than we could ever imagine. Think of David in the Old Testament. The great psalm writer, the noble warrior, the excellent king. David seemingly had it all. But from that high position, one moment of unchecked desire... And it all led to disaster. Many of us will know the story. He saw Bathsheba, the wife of another man, bathing, and he desired her for himself. And from that one act of coveting, sin escalated quickly. First came the adultery, then came the lies, then came the murder of her husband. In breaking the tenth commandment, David also broke the sixth, the seventh, and the ninth as well. And of course David got found out and God acted in righteous judgment and he suffered the consequences and over the following years his family fell apart, his kingdom went off the rails and his life was full of grief. If it could happen to good King David, it could happen to any of us. 
Jesus also wanted us to be realistic when he warned us that coveting can easily turn people away from following him. Do you remember his parable of the sower and the four soils? Do you remember the seed that grew up but then got strangled by the weeds and the thorns around them? In explaining that, Jesus said that the word of God can get choked out of our hearts by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. We must be aware. Coveting is powerful and it's subtle and it can attack anyone and have dreadful consequences. We must be on our guard. Secondly, if we want to tackle covetousness, we've got to try and see through its illusion. Covetousness promises contentment, it promises fulfillment, but it's an illusion. It never satisfies us. Take the coveting of wealth, for example. The great oil magnate, J.D. Rockefeller, once the richest man in the world, was once asked how much money it took for a person to be really satisfied. His reply was stark. Just a little bit more than they already have. And covetousness in all forms is like this. It it promises to deliver, but it routinely fails. It promises to set us free, but actually it enslaves us. In 1851, the German philosopher Schopenhauer said that coveting is like seawater. The more we drink, the thirstier We become. Jesus also told a chilling parable to help us see through the illusion. This is Luke 12, 16. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I've got no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. And who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. In that parable, the man thought he could amass enough material possessions to satisfy his need. And when he thought he'd finally managed it, he was suddenly called to account and it was all taken away. We need to realize the lies that we are told. Perhaps we can take the step to turn off the adverts on TV or to put the sound down at half-time in the rugby. Or at least scoff at them. Are you kidding? When they promise us to change our lives. We need to see through the illusion of covetousness. Thirdly, if we want to tackle this, we need to realise the impact of fear on our lives. Today, there's a commonly used acronym, FOMO. Fear of missing out. In our world, that fear is like the air we breathe. It's everywhere. We fear not getting what we could. We fear not having enough. We fear losing what we have. As we think about the future, we're full of fear and we want to find hope. And for many people, they turn to material things to find their security. 
And consequently, we end up living as though everything is up to us, that survival depends on our efforts and what we can get in and lay aside for ourselves, the resources we can amass. We try to take life into our own hands. But in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus pointed out the absurdity of this. He said, I tell you the truth, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? As Christians, we are to trust in God because he is faithful and true. Material things provide the illusion of security. God provides the reality. After all, if he does it for the unnamed birds of the field, how much more so will he do it for us, his people? Today we are finishing our series on the Ten Commandments. But did you know the most regularly spoken command in the Bible is the command... Do not fear. Do not be afraid. It comes more than 370 times in the Bible. The truth is, if we take the time to get to know God better, we will be less afraid. And that will cut at the root of the temptation to covet so far then, we've described what coveting is, we've seen the danger of it, and we've tried to come up with some ideas for tackling it. I want to now finish the sermon with something much more positive. What is the opposite of coveting? Well, the opposite is contentment. There's a famous old saying, the grass is greener on the other side. It isn't true. Often the problem is, is that we've been watering that grass on the other side with our coveting. We need to water the grass on our side of the fence. So how do we cultivate contentment in our lives? I've got a few brief suggestions just to quickly finish with. The first is to get a heart transplant. The way to finding contentment is to let God begin to shape our desires rather than the world. And that begins with knowing that God desires us, so we can trust him. When we come to God in faith, the first thing that God does is begin to straighten out our hearts, something that no fitness regime or self-help program can do. The Bible says that God gives us a new heart when we come to Jesus. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. What I mean by this is if we recognize that we're just tired now of running after things that never satisfy us, the very first positive step that we can take is to turn to God and put our trust in Jesus. And allow him to remove that old, broken, selfish heart and replace it with his own. The second positive thing we can do is to adopt an attitude of gratitude. We've said numerous times now that coveting doesn't lead to contentment. It only leads to us being dissatisfied with what we already have. 
But God wants us to be content. In Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul wrote, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty, and I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. And what's really interesting about that chapter is that although Paul is in prison for his faith at the time, he begins with rejoicing. Just a verse or so before that, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Paul could rejoice in his time of trial because he knew he still had so much to be thankful for. You know, in our Western world, we assume that we deserve everything. Everything is owed to us. It's as if we have a right to it. It's just not true. We deserve nothing. Everything we have is a gift from God. So instead of thinking, I must have this, let's be thinking, just look at what I already have. Take the time to stop and look around us like we did with the children and, and count our blessings. If we spend more time giving thanks for what we have now, it will stop us constantly pining for more. This then leads us on to the next suggestion. We are to become wise stewards of what we have. If God has given us everything we own, we need to manage it responsibly. Think about it. God has entrusted human beings with the creation that he lovingly made. He's entrusted us with each other. He's entrusted us with our own abilities and resources. In a very real way, we have been given the earth. We are to see ourselves as stewards not owners. In fact, we all have a responsibility placed upon us, and the more we have, the more responsibility we have. So rather than just looking for more and more stuff, let's look for opportunities to use what we already have. Well, the fourth suggestion is to become a giver. Honestly, the best antidote for coveting is to be generous. Jesus once said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And the reason that is the case is because it tackles materialism in our lives. Giving trains us to trust God and it points us outwards to fulfill our calling to bless other people. Instead of being concerned by amassing more and more things, we become concerned about the people around us and giving to them. And of course, that then helps those in the world who have far less than we do. J. John, in his book on the Ten Commandments, wrote, Let's live simply so others can simply live and learn again the gift of giving. And the final thing is to prioritize people over things. You know, in our pursuit of riches and possessions and fame, Other people pay the price. In our race for prosperity, it's the vulnerable that are crushed in the rush. Children and families are sacrificed on the altar of overtime. Friends fall by the wayside as we desire more status. God wants us to have high quality relationships with other people. 
And he knows that all that time we spend coveting other things is time wasted, that we could be working on our relationships with others. Coveting also makes us competitors with those around us rather than friends. Proverbs 15, 16 sums this up well. Better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a dish of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. I wonder what state our relationships are in at this time. Are there people close to us who are suffering because of our endless pursuit of selfish desire? Are our priorities right? The Bible tells us that God is love and he wants us to love too. People matter more than anything else. So we have spent the last 10 weeks studying the Ten Commandments and now we have reached the end. It may seem to us that coveting is the least serious of these commands, but it isn't. As we saw from the story of Adam and Eve, this is the root cause of all sin. And it has profound consequences for our well-being, our relationships with the wider community and the environment. As we've seen across all the ten weeks, God gave these commands not to be a curse, but a blessing. He didn't give them to spoil our fun, but to help us live the best lives that we can. God wants all people to live in freedom and to truly flourish. That's why he rescued us in the first place. So let's pay attention to this command and all the other nine. And let's begin to live differently the moment we leave here this morning.